1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. I'm very excited to welcome Damon B. Akins and William J. Bauer Jr. to the show. Dr. Akins is an associate professor of history at Guilford College, and Dr. Bauer is a professor of history at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and together... They are the co-authors of We Are the Land, A History of Native California, which came out earlier this year in 2021 from the University of California Press. Welcome both of you to the New Books Network. Thank Thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: Why don't we begin by just hearing a bit about yourselves and your backgrounds? How did each of you become interested in history? And why did you and how did you become professional historians? And Willie,
0: why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Round Valley Indian Tribes, which is located in uh, northern California. So our reservation is about 180 miles north of San Francisco off of Highway 101. And so when I was an undergraduate, uh, I went to an institution that had, I think, a grand total of three classes on American Indian content. That was, so that was American Indian history, American Indian government uh, and, uh, and American Indian literature. Uh, and so kind of reflecting on that experience as I was about to kind of graduate, uh, uh, undergraduate, I, I thought it was important to have people kind of uh, enter the historical uh, profession, kind of to teach classes on kind of more uh, on American Indian history uh, in, in general. Uh, and then um, in, in terms of kind of the research focus, uh, I, I always wanted to kind of write about home. Uh, so my first kind of book was uh, a history of, of migrant workers in Northern California based at, based out of the Round Valley Reservation. So I've always been kind of deeply uh, interested in kind of rethinking and kind of uh, discussing historically kind of the, the experiences of indigenous peoples in in California. I'll jump in
2: and say my story is very different than Willie's, uh, but share some overall similar patterns. I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, which is Indian country, Indian territory. So I grew up surrounded uh, in a way that... It was probably rather uncommon at the time, surrounded by uh, indigenous culture. But to be honest, as a, as a you know a young person, I was not that was not something that I was motivated into looking into. It was something that was kind of um, I don't know, it was just sort of there. Um, so I left, uh, as many people do, to get away and study things that were far away. And uh, was interested in art. Uh, realized very quickly that my interest in art was really an interest in art history because I'm not talented. Uh, and then it went from being art history. I realized that the thing that I was actually interested in was just the history part. And, um, and then one day read Gabriel Garcia Marquez's hundred years of solitude in the student union by the fireplace on a winter day and decided I needed to study Latin America. So I, uh, I studied Latin America. That's the direction I took, um, in California. And once I realized that I was studying Latin America, once I realized that it was, what was interesting to me was questions of nationalism and ethnic identity and sovereignty and how countries are built and how they come together and exclude. And so I realized that those issues that were attracting me to Latin America were also present in California. So here I was in California thinking uh, that I need to study California. So, in order to do that, of course, I went back to Oklahoma, where um, strangely, uh, there were two really phenomenal California historians working at the University of Oklahoma, and I studied with Al Hurtado, as did Willie, uh, did a PhD on Southern California, uh, Native history from mid19th century to mid- 20th century. And that's how I became a professional historian. And what about the genesis
1: of this book? How did it come together, and why write a book like this in the first place? How did it come about?
2: Well, I'll, I'll start there. The, uh, Willie is the is the genesis of the project. He saw the gap. I think um, bef- certainly before I did, but I think he saw the gap early on. The gap meaning that there isn't a book like this. Uh, there wasn't before this one, and I and I think there, for a number of reasons, it's a, it's a difficult book to write. But he saw that there needed to be a, ga- a book that could fill that yeah. void, um, namely that could carry what other scholars had done into the 20th and 21st century and also provide an accessible both physically accessible you can get a hold of it but also um in, in terms of its writing style and its audience an accessible history of California that focuses on a native perspective and uh he lulled me in with drinks. Uh, we were at a conference in Oakland and uh he uh, said I got an idea and so we had a couple drinks and I immediately recognized that he was right, and uh, we jumped on board.
0: Yeah, I, I think the, to kind of build on that and and to kind of think through uh, sometimes good and bad decisions made, made over drinks at the end, at the end of, of a conference.
2: Uh, I'd say this think, is a good one. I'd
0: say this yeah, is a good one. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm just teasing of course. <laughs> right? I, would, I would agree with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think kind of the, the, the gap that I think Damon was speaking about is, is that I think one of the great things about the book is that we were able to kind of... Right, um, build on the kind of the a great foundation that was already established by two indigenous scholars. And so, in the 1960s, the Lenape scholar Jack Forbes wrote a book called Native Californians, uh, Native Peoples in California and in Nevada, which was a kind of a survey of indigenous peoples in, in both of those two states. And so, um, uh, but it, and so it was revised in the 1980s, uh, and then in the 1990s, Kewa uh, scholar Rupert Costa also wrote a book called Natives of the Golden State. Uh, and those are both really kind of fantastic kind of overviews of California history. But as Damon kind of pointed out, I think there's a couple of, they were we recognize kind of a couple of deficiencies with those texts. One is that they were a bit older, right? It's, it's, so it's hard to get books that were published in the 1980s or even the, the 1990s. So some of the both of those books are, have a kind of hard time kind of staying in print. Um, and uh, secondly, they don't, as Damon kind of mentioned, they don't cover the twentieth and twenty first century with a lot of kind of detail, and so we really wanted to kind of focus in on on the on the twentieth and twenty first centuries in this book, and we wanted to write something that would be kind of uh, that would reach kind of California Indian people that they could kind of see their histories, their stories in it. So if we if we have Californian people reading the book, they uh, could see they could see a story about their aunt or uncle in it, or they see a picture of a relative in it. I, I think kind of it's vitally important for. I think California Indian people to see themselves in the history of California, uh, but also to have something kind of accessible for K through 12 educators, uh, especially as there's a tortured kind of relationship about kind of how to teach California history, uh, especially kind of at the fourth grade level. And so providing kind of a resource for K through 12 teachers uh, and then providing a resource for people who teach California history at the California State University System and and at the University of California system is kind of having kind of a book that would be useful for people who teach California history, but to kind of incorporate uh, California Indian content and information.
1: Yeah. And, and as I was reading this book, I was thinking about how it could in many ways serve as a model for other people wanting to write about uh, specific places, whether states or, or other localities from an indigenous perspective, that, that, that really, you know, you could you could transplant the stories here and obviously be a very different story, but you could write about it in, in, in other places as well. So I hope that someone kind of picks up that mantle. And, you know, I'm speaking to you now from Oregon, and I could see a, a similar book like this, but, but about Oregon and the place that will become Oregon as well.
2: Yeah, I could definitely see that as well. I think, I, I think that's um, you know the fact that you're in Oregon makes a lot of sense about it, because I think part of what made this book work the way it did is also what made it a difficult book to write. And that is, California had the most uh, diverse indigenous population of probably any region, except perhaps maybe Washington and Oregon, uh, which in some ways, those are false boundaries. Uh, mm-hmm. So we could say the Pacific coast of North America had an incredibly dense and diverse and varied indigenous population. And as a result, Um, we couldn't really tell the story of a type of tribe or a tribe or a specific nation. Um, It had to be, in order to be meaningful, it had to be a story that weaves together lots of different people and communities. And I think there are other places in the nation where that would would work. Um, But there are also many places where uh, it would be a bit more challenging, I think, to... um, I mean, I'm coming to you from North Carolina, uh, and there mm-hmm. are a few there are a few narratives that dominate Native history out here: the Cherokee, the Lumbee, and then you know the Saponi and Sara. But but the Cherokee and the Lumbee are the two that really dominate a lot of what people talk about. And so I imagine it'd be a little more difficult to do that here, just because it's not as diverse or as dense, yeah. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the one thing that maybe we could kind of inspire other other writers to do as they kind of think through kind of regional or kind of state-based histories that that center indigenous perspectives, um, is is the center um, is is the center land, right? Um, it, that's kind of why we kind of titled the book "We Are the Land," right? Is, it, is it a, a, in one sense it kind of embodies the the kind of one of the main arguments that we write the book is that that California Indians possess a, a unique relationship to the land that is California. Uh, and on the other hand, I think it speaks to the way in which kind of system ongoing systems of colonialism seek to divorce indigenous peoples uh, from from their homelands. Uh, and it's and I think what the book strikes to do is to kind of discuss kind of that tension of, through kind of indigenous relationships with the land, with these kind of colonial policies that are, are are intending to kind of divorce people from from their homelands. So I think that's kind of a narrative that I think that could might kind of carry in, into other spaces.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm always curious about the process of writing a book, uh, partially for uh, selfish reasons, since I'm working on a book myself, and I'm always interested in getting tips on on how to do it. But uh, especially when uh, a book is co-written like this, I'm curious about what that experience is like. Writing a book can often be a very solitary and a very personal process. So what was the experience like of co-writing a text for
0: the two of you? What was that process like? And Willie, maybe we can hear from you first. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of interesting as as Damon mentioned. I mean, and I and I think is I think one of the reasons it was interesting is because this is not typically what historians do. Right, typically historians mm-hmm. kind of write single-authored uh, books, like you just kind of mentioned. Right, they you're, you're you're alone in either an archive doing the research or you're alone in your office kind of doing doing the writing. Um, but as Damon mentioned, I mean, we kind of hatched this idea uh, at at a conference. Got building on, I think, um, initially on our geographic strengths and what we do. So most of my research has tended to favor or be kind of located in Northern California, um, as Damon um, mentioned, and his research kind of developed into or was kind of focused in in Southern California. And so we thought given kind of the the kind of the complexity of California Indian history, having kind of this north south kind of focus, uh, I think would be good for uh, for for writing the book. But I think as over time, I mean, I, I think other uh, I think strengths uh, I, I think developed over the course of the book that I think really kind of enhance uh, the, the final product. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been my research kind of methodologies tend towards kind of using oral history and oral tradition uh, and of focusing on kind of labor history and economic relations. Damon uh, has done a fantastic job I think throughout the book making sure that we thought about environmental history uh, throughout every chapter uh, and uh, also kind of and the kind of the visual eye that Damon brought to the book um, he's the one who could kind have of hunted down and found uh, the the photograph that's on the cover of the book uh, and also kind of had a kind of keen, keen eye on how maps would look and a lot of the kind of the visual sources that we that you see in the text and um, as I've had kind of uh, conversations with um, w- with other people about the book as it's come out, it's that kind of the balance that I think that is struck in the book is, is something that stands stands out to a lot of the readers.
2: So my art history background and, and art background, uh, you know, survived in, in tiny ways. I think. I think Willie laid it out really well. I don't have a lot to add there, just that um, we you know, we do work very differently. And I think it's interesting. It was a very interesting experience. And I could imagine, I, we haven't talked about this, Willie, but I could totally imagine a panel at some Western history conference or something on how to co-author a book, uh, not just us, but others us with others, because I think we could offer some interesting perspectives, given that we do come from a, a very different writing tradition or writing habits. I tend to write, start from the abstract and the... A, a, you know, elaborate and exaggerated and um, loopy and kind of gradually ground myself. And Willie tends to write from a start from a really grounded part, part and then add uh, complexity and into and it. And we end up in the same place. It's just we start in such opposite places that we, we recognize that early on, even from like even down to the fact that I'm a one space after the period guy and Lily's a two space after the period guy. Uh, so we had to work, uh, hard to make it invisible. I think we've done a great job. There are passages that I can't remember who wrote, but we did it. We we wrote up, we broke up the chapters after we'd conceptualized the whole thing together. There was a lot of abstract thinking and conceptualizing and periodization and organizing part of the, as part of the proposal. But once we laid out the chapters, we broke them up, divided them up and, um, and then wrote and then gave them to the other person to edit. So we each would edit uh, many times the other person's writing. And then as the editing became more severe and things were cut and moved, you know, the, those distinctions broke down in terms of whose chapter was which. Uh, and I think for the most part, it, we, we've accomplished that. We found a voice that remains steady throughout the, the text that it comes from both of us. Um, so I, I, I think that's, I think we were successful in that, but it was a lot of Google Drive and a lot of Dropbox and, uh, and all that.
0: Well, Damon, I will say that you have converted me to being a one space after a period person. So there you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but also yes. I, I think I've, it's been odd to kind of think about this process, especially in the last year after everyone's been kind of hunkered down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've been kind of teaching, you know, via Zoom or uh, WebEx or some of these other kind of platforms. It's almost I mean, I, one of the things I kind of thought of is, is that Damon and I were kind of uniquely prepared to kind of do that kind of work. Because as we were as we were writing the book, you know, up even before the pandemic kind of hit, we would always we would have kind of sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly kind of just phone conversations uh, just about where we were with the, with the writing. Um, you know, what needed to be done in each chapter? Uh, I You know, I think we were kind of I don't think that we could have done, I don't know how people could have kind of co-authored books kind of before kind of some of the advent of these kind of technologies that Damon kind of mentioned that we're all using right now. I think we were kind of, we kind of hit a good moment where this kind of work is now kind of easy to do, this kind of co-authored things that is easy to do. And I do, Damon, I think as you were kind of alluding to, I think that historians should do more of this, this kind of co-author, this co-writing of texts. I think it's very kind of productive and worthwhile, I think.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine this book being i could not imagine writing this book on my own and i'm not sure that it, it, it was just so much work not and it's not quite that it's, it was conceptually it was so broad but also just in terms of the thought process that continually had to go into it um I, we really benefited from having another set of eyes one tip to listeners if they did want to try to write a book together with somebody else turn your notifications on so that anytime the other author updates a file in Dropbox or changes a file in Drive, you get a little ding on your phone or your computer because it works as a really great kind of, I don't know, guilt reminder. Like, oh, Willie, <laughs> just, Willie just updated the chapter. He's working. So then I would feel like I, I need to work too. And it, it really did make things visible that when they're invisible, it's very easy to postpone until you know after the afternoon crisis of class or committee meeting or whatever.
1: And let the record show, I just uh, checked inside the book and there is one space after every period. So uh, oh, yeah. I don't know if that was an editorial decision or if that's just a, a, a win in Damon's column or what, but just, just <laughs>
2: confirming that for everyone. Well, actually, what would happen is we would uh, get to a certain <laughs> point and then I would just select the entire text and uh, do a find <laughs> replace for any time there were two spaces after a period and just not tell Willie. And then periodically I do it again and again. And so... His two spaces sort of disappeared, but then also once it got to the copy editor, they, uh, they, they, they were they were gonna uh, kind of wash that stuff out anyway,
1: right. So let's get into the content of the book a bit. And I want to first ask a question about structure, because there's an interesting move that that you both make where in between each of the I guess you can call the main chapters, you intersperse these smaller sections about individual specific places, places such as uh, Ukiah, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, and Los Angeles and Riverside and San Diego. What is the purpose of these subsections? And why include them as these standalone smaller chapters as you've done so? And Damon, maybe we can start with you
2: yeah that's great that that was um you know some of the some of the aspects of the book uh were there all along we knew that it would be chronologically organized we had an idea of the kinds of maps that we wanted we, I mean some of it looks very much like how we envisioned it when we started the vignettes came along um a, a few years in uh, uh, to the process because we were had always been struggling with Uh, the thing I think any historian, any writer who's writing history struggles with, and that's how you conceptualize and organize your writing. I mean, we we tend to default to chronology, uh, change over time is our, you know, it's our motto, but, um, but at the same time, we can organize things thematically and we can organize things topically or spatially. And in this case, we knew there were issues and topics that, that cut against the chronology. Um, uh, and so we were trying to figure out how to do that. And, uh, and the idea started out as a series of of just kind of, I don't know, uh, call outs. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily when we first started thinking about it spatial. We had this whole idea about the mission project and the way the missions had been remembered as an idea of something that, that really isn't just about the 1830s or the 1890s or the 1930s or the 1950s, but it stretches all the way across. Uh, and gradually, those vignettes became increasingly spatially- oriented. And we realized that that that's the thing that tied all this together. And that's the way we wanted to organize it. So we went at it down to nine places and we wanted the chronology to stop for a bit. And we wanted people to focus on a place so that they could see change over time uh, in a, in a, in a concentrated way. They could see how all of California, one of the, one of the people who read uh, an early manuscript said um, something along the lines of, uh, isn't every space a native space? And we had to kind of formulate our response to say, yeah, every place is a native space, but in different ways. And so each of these locations that we've, we've selected, their indigeneity, the indigenous people of the region uh, followed different paths, some similar over, you know, some sort of like some similar patterns, but yet the distinct uh, ways the paths broke were, were were important stories to be told. We wanted people to be able to look out the window and and, you know, I, I lived in L.A. for a number of years. And so I could imagine how I would have treated the vignette on Los Angeles. I would have gone to some of these places and looked at them. And I as a teacher, both a high school teacher in L.A. now at a smaller arts college, I I want my students to get out and, and see what they're reading about and doing those vignettes made it easier for us to imagine people doing that.
0: Yeah, I think the, the one thing I would add here is, is I think the vignettes also allow us to tell a story of, of continuity as much as kind of change over time. I, I think a lot of times people kind of think about American Indian history as being, as is only kind of focusing on the ways in which Europeans and Americans disrupted and and overthrew kind of uh, indigenous lives, and and that's that that's a it's an important story. I think there's there's a lot there there's you know a lot of historical evidence for that kind of narrative and that story. But I do think that sometimes it's important to kind of step back and look at kind of the the continuities that it, that exist for kind of indigenous peoples. Uh, and I and I thought that that place becomes a kind of a good way to kind of continue to to make that argument or to kind of to to trace that over time is that yes, there's a lot of things that happen like in a place like Ukiah, like indigenous peoples are dispossessed of land. Um, uh, There's a variety of policies that are are there to kind of, that that seek to kind of separate Pomo people, the indigenous people of that area uh, from their lands. Uh, But Pomo people uh, were there at creation. Uh, They were there throughout the systems of colonization. Uh, They're there now, and they'll continue to be on their homelands uh, into the near future. And so I think kind of being able to try to trace that continuity, I think was helpful through using these, these vignettes as well.
1: There's a lot of material packed into this book. We're not going to have time to talk about all of it. Uh, You cover, you know, many centuries worth of history in a book of uh, around 300 or so pages. But I think it's worthwhile to start at the beginning, to start with beginnings. Can you talk a bit about the importance of stories about place to the Native people who lived in that place that would eventually become California? Uh, You make the connection, I think, between place and storytelling and identity very clear in this book.
0: Yeah, I, I think as as you kind of noting, I think one of the kind of the complicated parts of writing a book like this is that we really tr- tried to tell a story. Um, you know, one could say from creation, from indigenous creation to casinos, and now actually to to beyond casinos, right? Into well into the, we're getting into the twenty first century. Um, and then, so we, in order to kind of write that kind of book and to make those kind of emphasis, we, we centered indigenous creation stories and other oral traditions in that kind of first chapter. Um, and we do so uh, because we want to kind of pr- privilege indigenous ways of knowing. And I think by looking at creation stories or in and other oral traditions that, that come from California, Indian nations, California Indian communities, we're able to kind of focus on relationships to the land Uh, And then as well as then, other human actors that that take a uh, that act in in creation stories and in oral traditions. Uh, And then I think in this way, land becomes kind of land becomes kind of important because as articulated in oral histories and oral traditions, people are literally kind of literally kind of people of a place, meaning that the names that indigenous peoples have for themselves often translate into people of a place and so the so that a people the the, the name for a, a native nation uh, in northern california is called the yuki people that's uh, their the name for themselves is Ukonom, which translates into people of the valley right so that kind of situates them in a specific uh, land in a specific place that uh, at which they were created and i think one of the the, the kind of the effective ways that we do this is Uh, By by privileging indigenous kind of oral traditions and creation stories and that sort of thing, we're not kind of telling a story of indigenous kind of colonization or the way in which kind of Europeans and Americans colonize indigenous peoples. But we're kind of telling a story of of, of kind of indigenous creation stories and how indigenous nations have kind of grown uh, from their uh, from their creation.
1: And how did California's native people encounter Europeans during the initial years of meeting and early colonization? It's not the kind of simple story of a single moment as it is mm-hmm. often told in, you know, uh, I, that's certainly how I learned in, in elementary school and, you know, in, in a lot of sort of mainstream historical myth-making, but that's not really how it went.
2: Right, right. It, and, and I think that, that part of that has to do with California's uniqueness. I mean, this was a diverse, multivalent, world with with lots of different people when we were describing this and writing about it we thought about it a lot as a very dynamic place with a lot of pulsing relationships you know we're thinking about it as um, uh, trade goods and ideas and languages and people moving uh from group to group from community to community uh so that when the europeans arrived they were not walking into a world and i think like you pointed out we often certainly in in uh, the past we've always uh, seen in mainstream history uh, the indigenous people depicted as as though they're living in a state of nature a kind of simplistic ignorance waiting for Europeans to arrive or you know worse yet like literally sitting on the beach twiddling their thumbs and yawning waiting for the Europeans to get there so that the party can start you know and that that image of of the european arrival being the moment when things start we really had to push back against we wanted to illustrate that this was a world that was vibrant and existed and thrived on its own. And European entrances into that were dynamic, or dramatic, but they weren't the kind of dramatic encounter that we often see where once this person arrives on the beach, everything changes. Clearly, things did change. Disease um, found a ready home in those pulsing networks of you know, trade networks and other things. So disease traveled much faster than Europeans. And uh, and had a real impact, of. but we wanted to make sure that it was it was seen as Euro- Europeans trying to fit in or accommodate themselves to, or Indigenous people seeking to integrate some aspects of European life into their own uh, into their own uh, ways. Like an example from the book that we use, the Kumeyaay in San Diego. Um, there's an account of uh, uh, from one of the uh, the Spanish colonizers that writes about how these people are so simple, they came to help us, uh, call in our fishing. Uh, and, uh, and then we gave them some as a kind of a reward. And it's clear that's not at all what's happening. It's just, this is fishing on the shares, right? This is the Kumeyaay watching and saying, you know, we want to make sure that we get what is due us if we're going to let you fish in our water. And that, that, that that is an example of what I think we were trying to do throughout: is to depict the encounter from the other side, or from the other sides, in ways that made it legible to people. Uh, it wasn't. Um, there were there were reasons that Indigenous people wanted to work with Europeans, and there were obviously many reasons why they did not, and in ways that they resisted.
1: A word that comes up a lot in this book, well, a couple words, actually, that come up a lot in this in this book, and one you just mentioned, Damon, it, are words like adaptation and resiliency. And in the, the, over the course of the 17th and the 18th centuries, you have several European empires that are attempting to exert control on the place that, that was beginning to be called California. And through all of that, you have indigenous people in the region who are demonstrating this resiliency. So, what adaptations and what forms of resistance did Native people uh, along the Pacific uh, demonstrate, particularly as the Spanish government was trying to
0: impose the, the famous or maybe infamous mission system along the California coast? Yeah, this was one of the kind of the, the more challenging sections of the book to write. And, and I think one of the reasons why it was kind of kind of challenging is that kind of the Spanish period is one of the most kind of well-documented and written about time periods uh, in, in California history. Uh, you know, if you travel traveled, to, if you go to California, as you just mentioned, Steve, right, is that there's, missions have been preserved, they're kind of part of the ways in which kind of California kind of thinks of its, itself and, it, and its identity. Uh, historians have, have documented and discussed kind of the development of what has been called the Spanish fantasy past as a way of not, for non-indigenous Californians to develop an identity for themselves in the state, uh, but also kind of for more material reasons to attract tourists to to Southern California principally and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so we kind of again, kind of I think one of the kind of things we try to do out uh, in, in the sections, of what we do throughout the book, I think, right, is, is to try to kind of balance a story uh, of, of col- colonialism at these at these Spanish missions, right? So these missions, we see kind of the forced conversion of indigenous peoples to Catholicism, uh, the spread of, of crowd diseases, which uh, leads to kind of widespread depopulation of indigenous peoples along the California coast, uh, the introduction of, of labor relations and slavery. Into indigenous uh, communities, uh, and then we wanted to kind of balance those stories uh, with stories of, as you kind of mentioned, or, of, of resistance uh, and resiliency on the part of indigenous peoples. And so, indigenous peoples kind of might blend indigenous and Christian religious icons. Such there's a painting at Mission San Luis Rey, for instance, that uh, blends kind of Chumash religious iconography uh, with Spanish uh, religious kind of icons. Uh, Actually, we had an event last night, uh, at a, uh, we had a virtual event last night, and Damon pointed out is that uh, in our chapter on the Spanish missions, there is a picture of indigenous peoples at uh, Mission San Francisco playing uh, a hand game or a game. And then uh, like almost 100 pages later, we have a picture of indigenous peoples uh, playing hand game, different group of indigenous peoples playing a different hand game. Uh, up in Northern California, outside the Grandstone uh, Rancheria. And, I, and, and so the, these, these practices on the part of, of indigenous Californians kind of even are, are maintained and continued, even though these kind of colonial systems uh, are kind of impinging on their lives. And, and we also kind of talk about uh, resistance, uh, everyday forms of resistance, such as kind of avoiding work, um, to like a more a widespread kind of acts of resistance, such as running away uh, and even the killing of, of Spanish mm-hmm. priests. And this, I think this kind of focus on runaways also convinced us that we needed to look outside the missions. I think too often, right, this California Indian history during this kind of the Spanish period is seen only through the prism of the mission, as if that's the only place that California Indians were kind of living and and having kind of an experience with. Uh, And so we wanted to situate ourselves in the story outside the missions and and examine how California Indians kind of kept the missions and Spanish colonists at, at arm's length, either by kind of allowing runaways to, to incorporate into their communities, uh, maybe kind of trading for goods, but still not kind of uh, engaging with, with the Spanish in a lot of ways. And so I think we were kind of able kind of, again, to kind of balance these two different kind of perspectives that, that seem to kind of um, shape how people understand California's past.
2: I would, just add, that I would just add that if you want to l- look at those two pages, that's page 78 and page 169, and, and due to the happenstance of the layout of the book, you can open the book to both pages and see the images side by side if you just take the intervening 100 pages and sort of hold it up. Little experiment. Little experiment and then, as you're pointing, and then,
1: as you're pointing out, you know, the importance of continuity along with change. And, and as you said, one uh, of uh, you said before, you know, we, as historians, we 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 peddle in change over time. Right. It's what we look at. But as much as things change, you know, uh, often you have these threads that just run through the past. And that's a perfect example of that,
2: really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, so again, speaking, you know, thinking about what historians do and how historians think about the past, I feel as though often people who write and think deeply about history were kind of resistant to thinking about like, you know, particular moments as like, oh, this is when everything changed, right? That the, yeah. the past is too complicated, that there is, you know, too many factors that lead to any one event that, that we tend to bristle against this kind of bookmark style of history. Yet, all of that said, all that said, the 1840s in California are really a moment of, yeah. of pretty massive and important so, changes. So you know, can you talk a little bit about the 1840s and their aftermath? What changes for California's native people uh, after 1846, going into 1848 and 49, and 1850? Can you explain the changing relationship between indigenous people in California and Americans specifically, and why and how this relationship came to be characterized by what is increasingly uh, seen and, and and recognized as really genocidal violence?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we, and the first thing I think to say is, that, is to echo your last bit there that this is this is a genocide. There's no question. Question in anybody's mind who studies this seriously, uh, even Governor Newsom has flirted around he's the language. He's avoided, right. avoided saying exactly. it exactly, but he's and used the ad, ad, adjective genocidal, "genocidal" to describe what he just described as violence. So it's kind of a bad, uh, so it's kind of a bad but it's it's genocide. It's it, it fits all the so, definitions. Yeah, and so yeah, we did struggle with this, and from a standpoint of of the writing, because this was a moment where things dramatically changed. Yeah and so much has been written about it uh we needed to present that but we also didn't want that to weigh so heavily in the narrative that it it contributed to a pattern that we've seen and the pattern tends to be that there's the missions and then there's the gold rush and the genocidal violence that came about as a result and those are almost like two sons with a u that that Make it, you hard know, to see. Uh, make it hard to see what happened right around around it, like it block out the shadows and the spaces in between. So, um, so in order to answer the question about what happened, I think we sort of have to go back a little before 1846 because the 1840s was characterized by a kind of liminal status. Uh, the missions had been secularized and uh, the indigenous people had been, quote, emancipated and Uh, And a variety of different patterns emerged. Some people uh, remained near the missions and continued to work in agriculture and sort of maintain the missions as a a place, uh, not a religious place as much. Many others took what they could and left. Uh, It's a period of of rampant um, horse theft. Uh, And that's something that shows up in the literature consistently um, is that Native people are coming in and taking what they need, and in many cases, taking what they produced. Um, So that's the the period of the 1840s. The war war comes into that. The the Mexican-American War occurs in that context, and the United States uh, wins the war quite easily in terms of its military power. and followed almost immediately by settlers. And I think that the big change here is that once American settlers came in, had driven at first in low numbers by the war and the prospect for business. But then obviously, as I think everyone knows, in massive numbers after the widespread dissemination of the uh, discovery of gold, um, the 49ers, so to speak, a term that itself erases things, right? Like uh, the first wave of, Of miners and settlers were there in '48, um, but yet you know we talk about the '49ers because that's when the white people arrived. And so that that period period when Americans, uh, among others, but predominantly Americans, began to arrive and mine, um, brought a level of genocidal violence into a system of settler colonialism that, uh, again, was able to. Um, tap right into existing trade and existing commu- uh, uh, communication networks So violence goes into that uh, and ricochet radiates out into into the hinterlands uh, The effect is uh, I think uh, pretty well known but just uh, to kind of reiterate you know the population of indigenous people in California prior to European arrival is estimated anywhere between you know the numbers are, are pretty vast. Seven hundred thousand, a million, three hundred thousand—it's all. There, there, a lot of people. Um, but it's clear. But it's clear that by 1850, there's somewhere around 150,000 Indigenous people, and by 1900, there's somewhere around 15,000. So the the violence that occurs has a direct impact on the lives of Indigenous people. Uh, and it's simply put, it's that they were in the way of the kind of land use that Americans envisioned they wanted to turn the land into a commodity and indigenous people were literally in the way of that of that effort and uh, were dealt with with uh, astonishing violence if i could ask one follow up to that question
1: um you know among people who know the story as you as you said there's really no debate that this was a genocide yet, in california said, and yet, as you also said you have the governor of california who you know, kind of dances around the yeah. subject. Why do you think there is this disconnect between those people who, who know the story, who know the truth about yeah. what happened, and yet people, you know, with with power to, to outside maybe with an outside voice or an outside role in shaping how people think about these things? Why is there this, this resistance to, to you know, talking about this in a way, in a way that is, is is honest and, and reflects the reality?
0: I think
2: there's a. I think of there's a couple reasons. One is I, I think that um, the story of westward expansion, well, manifest destiny, that's past- that's a myth a lot mythology that still works for a lot of people. It still accomplishes what it set out to do, which was to deliver the possession of the United States to their ancestors, to their ancestors in, in a way that mm-hmm. justifies their presence. And I think there's a lot of people who just don't really want to question that. In the same way, there's a lot of Southerners who don't really want to question. The lost cause, or you know, they, 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 these mythologies still do work, even if they're wrong. They still do some sort of mythological work. The other thing is, the other thing is, I think there's, you know, um, I'm, not an, I'm not an attorney. I don't, I don't speak law, law, but at the same time, I think there are some real risks for uh, uh, state officials or federal officials to uh, to label this a genocide, because, because it, is almost, it is almost certainly going to embolden claims um from descendants and I think, a, I think there's a you know there's a kind of let's just, let's just smooth off the edges and say things were bad in the past you know uh, like what i teach my students but um uh, i came remember the journalist's name who described the passive voice as the past exonerative right bad That like things bad things happen mistakes were made not you know but but not take ownership for who did that and so and, the, and why so i think that's also a part of it it just really brings on um some responsibility. Uh, some responsibility that I think some federal or state officials aren't ready to accept.
1: Mm-hmm. Power and restitution. Power and restitution. It yeah. sounds like a really, yeah. really
2: yeah. kind of yeah. the, the, the prime factors.
1: Yeah. So, really, okay. so... Willie, I'll turn to you for this question. And, and in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in the aftermath of of the, 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 the tumultuous and violent and, and, and horrific mid-19th century, uh, you start to see wage work become another way that both Americans are attempting to colonize California and colonize indigenous people in California, but it's more complicated than that. It also becomes a means for those same people to resist colonialism. So can you tell us a little bit about the allotment era, as it's often known, and the importance of? Changing forms of labor and
0: of work, in particular, at the uh, turn of the century in California. Yeah, I, I think this is a kind of this moment in time was I think vitally important for California Indian people and in California Indian communities. I, I think it, it's the ways in which kind of California Indian people kind of rebuilt their lives in in the aftermath of kind of the genocidal violence that, that Damon had just kind of had, had talked about. And so allotment, and in case anyone doesn't know, right, is it a policy was a policy of kind of distributing. The formerly kind of communal land holdings on reservations, right, to, to heads of households. And so the goal of allotment policy was to assimilate American Indians into the body politic, into the national politic as, as private property uh, landholders. And the goal there, right, was on one hand to break up communal ho- held lands on reservations, uh, um, but also to break up uh, tribal uh, tribal identities. And so on, on one hand, like the story of allotment is a, a story of horrendous land dispossession uh, the loss of lands all across the United States. Uh, I, I, I believe right, uh, American Indians across the United States lost 70% of their land base uh, between, say, 1887 when allotment was passed uh, and, and 1934 when allotment was finally ended. And, and when I teach classes, I always kind of emphasize this kind of long, long point about the, the devastating and the crippling impact of, of allotment. And the way in which allotment has produced kind of modern kind of indigenous poverty. And so I think you know when Damon was kind of talking about kind of why don't people want to recognize genocide, I think that often people don't want to kind of recognize how the past continues to affect uh, the present. Uh, in much the same way, kind of the, the genocidal policies of the of the 19th century are affecting Cal- uh, you know are affecting California Indian lives today. So do these kind of policies of land dispossession and allotment affect Cal- uh, indigenous peoples in California and indigenous peoples throughout the rest of the United States? But in addition to kind of land dispossession being a kind of an enormous problem for native peoples in in California, uh, in California, allotments were often incredibly small. Right, so on the plains, for instance, uh, allotments were sometimes between 160 and 320 acres. Right, that 160 acres was a, uh, a reflective of you know the the you know the Homestead Act, one of those kind of as Damon was mentioning, kind of that that mythology of, of westward expansion and and, uh, and so forth. Like the Homestead Act, it's kind of wrapped up into that, and that granting 160 acres of land to to, to farmers. Uh, but on some reservations uh land allotments were between five and ten acres of land and if the goal of allotment policy as warped as was was to kind of promote kind of uh family farming to to american indians there were no way that that american indian families could could survive on five to ten acres of, of land in, in california right the nation had kind of moved beyond the kind of the use of, of such small small land plots and so throughout california indigenous peoples kind of turned turned to wage wage labor um and damon and i both in kind of previous work have discussed the ways in which kind of indigenous peoples kind of become migrant farm workers Where I'm from in northern california uh, people went out into the fields and they picked uh they, they picked hops uh picked grapes and, the, and 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 those kind of activities uh indigenous peoples kind of worked as cowboys uh they worked on infrastructure projects s- such as irrigation canals uh and so there you see kind of this widespread kind of act kind of wage labor activity throughout California, that's being perpetuated by indigenous peoples. And I think that this is actually kind of an important point that I think people need to kind of recognize. I think in the present day, when people think about American Indians, they think about them as being unemployed. Uh, And that's that's kind of a product of more kind of recent historical developments. And if we kind of look back to the late 19th and early 20th century, we see kind of a rich and robust kind of experiences of indigenous peoples working uh, in a variety of kind of activities throughout the state throughout the state of California. But I think one of the kind of the neat things that, that work and labor does for California communities is that it, it meant much more than kind of earning a wage that was important for, a, for families to survive. You know, that, that's obviously kind of the economic importance of, of wage labor uh, was, was significant and vital that helped families kind of get through the late 19th and early 20th century. But it was also kind of the there's it, it was wage labor was a political act. Uh, as California Indians moved to reservations, sometimes they chose to do so; sometimes they were forced there uh, against against their will. Uh, indigenous California Indians experienced a considerable uh, considerable amount of surveillance. Reservation agents, the people who were char- the federal government put in charge of reservations, surveilled and watched every aspect of California Indian lives. They tried to control American Indian economies, uh, their families, uh, sexuality all aspects of California Indian lives were, were watched and monitored. And so when California Indians left reservations to go work uh, as, as migrant farm workers, for instance, if only temporarily, if only kind of a few weeks, they escaped the gaze of the, the federal government and kind of lived lives as, as they kind of wanted, as they were wanting to, to do. Um, and they were able to participate in activities that the Office of Indian Affairs and the federal government didn't want them to participate. So, you know, we were been kind of talking about kind of, hand game and these kind of gambling games that California Indians have been playing, uh, throughout, throughout their history. Well, on reservations, agents didn't want them playing these games. They thought they were, they were detrimental and demor- and, and, and demoralizing to California Indian people. Um, but they're actually, but, but California Indian peoples wanted to continue to play them. Uh, there are ways to kind of socialize and, and get in contact with one another and, and kind of create community and family, uh, throughout. Uh, it, a while, kind of, these federal policies were seeking to kind of dispossess them and, and separate them from land and and, and other people. Uh, I remember I I did an inter- I interviewed someone about this a couple of years ago, and she recalled uh, that after a, kind of a long day of people kind of doing farm work and uh, picking hops, for instance, in Northern California, uh, she would follow her dad at night and they would play grass game. They would you know do play one of these gambling games late 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 into the night. Uh, I don't know how they did it right migrant farm workers hard work. I don't know how you kind of work all day and then and go and then get prepared to to play gambling games but um but she would remember that she would lay on her dad's back while he was he was playing these games, and that's how she would almost fall asleep every night right so her her kind of experiences that that she had was this was kind of her memory as was going to kind of do this farm work but also kind of thinking about kind of her own relationship with her father. Uh, as as he was kind of engaging with this kind of building community with other with other native people at the uh, both uh, during work uh, and then after work, um, but I think we also see kind of efforts of, of indigenous Californians to mold allotment policy to their own ends. And so, on the Hoopa Valley Reservation, for instance, in far northern California, Hoopas uh, ensured that all allotments, at least initially, ensured that everyone had access to the Trinity River. And, and so, even given this kind of policy. Uh, that is seeking to dispossess indigenous peoples of their lands. Indigenous peoples were able to kind of mold this kind of these activities to make sure that everyone kind of had equitable re, uh, access to resources, uh, including kind of again kind of access to the river, which was important economically and spiritually for Hupa people, as well as uh, as other resources in, on and near their reservation.
2: One thing I would one, thing, one I would, thing I would one thing I would add to that was just a a, a piece from. Um, testimony some testimony in a court case that I had read and uh, one of the farmers from Southern California was complaining about the size of the allotments and he described it, I thought just very, very, you know, clearly as too small to um, provide grazing for horses and too, uh, um, and not big enough to um, justify having a tractor because the tractor was so expensive and so you really couldn't work it either way because if you were working the land with horses, there was you had to pay to feed them, there wasn't even enough grazing land, but yet you couldn't possibly afford a tractor because the land wouldn't support that kind of economic production. And, and this was one of many, many complaints about the size of the allotments.
1: So the, beginning of the, so the beginning of the 20th century marks a new era of resistance in all kinds of ways. But among these is the founding of new organizations, some of which were, were led by Eastern whites, uh, but others were organized and were led by uh, indigenous California activists themselves. So what roles did activist groups play in California during the, the middle decades of the 20th century? Jumping ahead a little bit. And how do they bring together all kinds of different threads of resistance? and issues relating to citizenship and self-governance and sovereignty and even up to the Red Power uh, movement and moment uh, in the the 1960s and 1970s?
2: So, yeah, that's a really so, yeah, that's a really great question. And I think part of what's interesting about it is that Um, By the middle decades of the 20th century, most of the major uh, activist groups, Indian activist groups in California, were helmed by Indians. And I think that's uh, uh, something that that has its own story. Late 19th century, there were a lot of uh, so-called friends of the Indians. Uh, They called themselves the Friends of the Indians. Sometimes they capitalized the F because they were Quakers. Uh, maybe sometimes they capitalized the F because they thought they were important, but, but they, they, they they definitely did think that their help was what was going to save indigenous people, and they rushed to the to their aid. And beginning in that moment, and carrying through all the way till the middle of the twentieth century, uh, California Indian peoples tended to look at that as like, yeah, sure, uh, we'll accept parts of your help, but we're going to you know, put that toward the goals that we have. And so it was a very tense kind of cooperation in which uh, non-Indians would raise awareness of uh, Indian problems, would help raise money in some cases, but often Native people were happy to take what worked for them and turn it to their own advantage. And that that really carried through in the late 19th and into early 20th century, and out of that come the two first major organizations, the Mission Indian Federation. And the Brotherhood of uh, the the Brotherhood the Collette organization that came out of Northern California, both of those were uh, white people. Uh, Frederick Collette and his wife, and uh, Jonathan Tibbett, a uh, real estate uh, I mean <laughs> a real estate aspirant, a developer that was in uh, was trying in Riverside, and and, and they organized these uh, groups with the idea that they would. Um, in some, way, in some way benefit personally from organizing Indians. And uh, some have pointed to those groups as, as not legitimate in some case in the past, certainly because they were led by whites and the, and the whites in many cases, certainly in the case of Colette, were, were wildly corrupt. Um, but in the case of, say, the Mission Indian Federation, their membership grew to thousands and, and Jonathan Tibbet was the only white person involved. And uh, it became fairly easy for the organization to function in the way it wanted without his, uh, he's a figurehead, um, that, that helped, uh, you know, raise money and such, but those those organizations became very powerful and took off in different directions. In the case of the uh, Northern California, a lot of the native people who were active in that organization ended up, uh, forming their own organization in the 1920s. And, uh, and that grew into a number of different organizations in the 1940s. Uh, that were solely led by uh, California Indians. And in the South, the Federation continued um, into the the early 1960s, but really took a um, cantankerous, maybe is the way to say it, uh, approach. Um, You know, um, they turned towards some kind of of, uh, reactionary politics. But I think that, that that middle decade of the 20th century in which you have statewide, statewide or at least very large regional organizations that are engaging in lawsuits and testifying before Congress and fighting the termination bills and all sorts of things lay the foundation for what happens in the 1960s uh, that we often think of as the Red Power Movement. We um, we thought a lot about how to deal with Alcatraz because Alcatraz, the Alcatraz occupation in 1969 is one of the, the most iconic um, California Indian stories despite the fact that in some ways it's not really a California Indian story. It's a Native American story that happens in California. And so we wanted to make sure that we structured the book in such a way that people understood where that came from and also where it went. And many of the people who... Uh, were involved who were from California had come out of a tradition where their parents or uncles or grandparents even in some cases had been very very active um uh, Ed Castillo who uh, uh, was one of the original occupiers um was I believe the yeah. willie help me out it was it wasn't Adam Castillo his yes. uncle yeah I think so, yeah. And so he grew up in a in in that that milieu of early 20th century mid 20th century Indian activism and so this was not strange to him it's just a different kind of of, of iteration of it. So I think so I think that's how we understood the uh, the California Indian participation in the Alcatraz occupation as coming from and then we trace that back into places like uh, the Pitt River occupation in 1970 uh, to show how Alcatraz I, mean, Alcatraz, I mean, this is funny. Alcatraz is not an island in the famous phrase. Alcatraz is just one example of, of a long standing tradition of California Indian activism that continued after that.
1: And then you spend, and then you spend uh, the last couple chapters of the book uh, uh, detailing some of the more recent past in the history of California's indigenous history and it's like you know it's it's they're, they're two really well written and fairly long chapters and we've been talking for about an hour so I'm not, I'm not gonna ask either of you to, to go over each of them in detail but I was hoping that maybe you could tell a couple stories of the recent past of California's indigenous history that maybe help explain the present moment a bit where do the
0: themes that you present in the this book stand today? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of ways we can do this. I mean, I think one of the things that we did in the book we, we is we tried to make the book as current as possible, meaning that we finished the, writing the book about a year ago when the nation kind of locked down because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and so we were able to kind of include examples of how Indigenous people shaped and responded to the pandemic in the book. Um, you know, for instance, uh, right around I think uh, April of last year. Uh, a native nation in Northern California held a jump dance, which is part of the kind of a world renewal ceremony, which is intended to kind of restore balance to the world. And so they performed the ceremony uh, to, you know, to kind of restore the balance that we were all, you know, the imbalanced world in which we were all living because of the COVID-19 um, pandemic. Uh, and then I think another kind of story that kind of popped out to me as we were doing this is, I remember there was uh, when San Francisco kind of went into lockdown and no one was on the streets anymore. Uh, there were stories about coyote uh, wandering the streets of San Francisco, and in a oral tradition, Coyote is one of their uh, creator figures. And it was striking to me to kind of think through the ways in which kind of Coyote was there at the creation of the Bay Area of what we understand about the Bay Area, and then is here back, kind of walking around the streets where no, when it when it was everyone was asked to kind of stay stay at home. And I, I think that these stories. Kind of talk about kind of the revitalization of of california indian people in the in the twentieth and twenty first centuries, and in part we did center kind of on Indian gaming right the explosion of Indian gaming in southern california has, has bolstered indigenous economies um, so much so that the San manuel band of southern located in Southern California just bought a resort casino uh near the las vegas strip right where i'm where i'm at right now, and so um i I think that kind of that there's a kind of an economic and then kind of a a, a a cultural revitalization becomes of that so one of the things that we kind of talk about in the book is the ways in which uh the, the explosion of Indian gaming has allowed people to return to reservations so there's been always a policy of kind of getting like with allotment to get native peoples off reservations well one of the examples of from Indian gaming is that they're able to kind of come back to uh come back to reservations and return to, to homelands and so um, we see this with non-gaming tribes too uh the hoopas for instance have revitalized women's coming of age ceremonies um in round valley where i'm from uh, we beginning in the 1990s we began to hold uh, an event called the gnome cult walk in which uh we we re- retrace uh the, the route people took uh it, during an ethnic cleansing that had happened during the american civil war and so we kind of commemorate and rethink some of these kind of uh these these kind of historical events and so I think that there are things that we could have covered a little bit more in the book, um, you know, the, I think the, the the rise of the land back movement, for instance, in the, within the last year, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think. But I, I think those things all kind of point to kind of the continuing vitality of, of indigenous peoples in California, kind of building on the point that Damon uh, made a couple of minutes ago about Alcatraz not being an island, but kind of this kind of long history of indigenous activism that it, it was it. it It'll continue as uh, even after this book is published and, and going into the twenty uh, first century.
1: So for one of my final so for one of my final questions, I'll pose this to to each of you in turn. Um I'm always curious as sort of a, a summary question. if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding, when they put it down for the final time, when they reach the last page, what would you hope that, that would be? And Damon, why
2: don't we start with you? So you're, it's always a challenge to get to, to winnow it down to one, but I think that the thing that I would want people to take away, maybe I don't even have a, a word for it, but the ongoing nature of this story, as much as it's important to show that, that California Indians are still here because there's still a widespread belief that... that Either all Indians have just disappeared uh, in face of, of you know modern society or if people are a little bit more aware the that the genocide in California worked and that the Indians are gone. So that's still a very widespread perception. And so it's very critical that we continually point out California Indians are still here. They're thriving. They're they're growing. Um, But the other part of that kind of ongoing nature here is that the settler colonial structures that were put in place are ongoing. So it's not just that California Indians are still here, but but we, in my case, non-native, are still engaging in colonial practices. So um, it's not even that. Indians survived colonialism, and now we can talk about it. It's that native people are around, and we're still colonizing, but in a different way. I and I think that's that that's a really important um, lesson, you know a lesson for people to take away is that we're still in it; it's still happening, and that can play out one in in the way the people choose to act. act. Um, uh you know and we can engage in, engage harm in settler harm reduction it and policies but it also helps make sense a little more sense of the land back movement that willie just mentioned um, this, um is this is ongoing this is still an open-ended question
0: yeah i think i i i think i would build on that is, is that i think that the, the one thing that i want readers to take from the book is um california has has been an indigenous space uh it is an indigenous space uh and it will be an indigenous space uh going into the future
1: And then finally, I always and then finally, I always like to get a preview from my guests about uh, what projects they are currently working on. Sometimes, when a book is so uh, recently out, it it feels uh, sort of like a sort of an engagement in sort of a, a, a almost wishful thinking, right? Like this is what I'm planning to be working on in the future. But nonetheless, you know, as historians, we always have a few projects that that we're that we're
0: working on. So, what are each of you working
1: on? Now, yes, really?
0: I think over the summer, one of the projects I'm working with a graduate student with whom I'm working to. to trace the relation or to discuss the relationship between indigenous peoples in southern Nevada uh, to the Colorado River and then talk about how the Hoover Dam was one way in which uh, that relationship was kind of undermined and, and thwarted um, uh, and then also uh, maybe on a, kind of a larger project I'm, I'm interested in the way in which kind of Maidu and Concow people in northern California including my ancestors right use kind of mobility and, and movement to kind of enlarge and reshape their worlds and so I, I, I kind of almost kind of having kind of a similar structure of kind of beginning with creation stories and thinking through mobility there and caring through about how con- 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 conco mobility kind of helps to kind of create what we understand to be kind of a modern uh, a modern united states
2: and uh and uh, and i think with any writing project like this anybody who's engaged in it knows that so much ends up edited out you know that you you have to cut and so some of the projects i'm working on are things that they were my precious, <laughs> you know. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges taught, <laughs> calls editing killing your children. So these are my precious babies that got, you know, got cut and, from the book, and and, and. and and I'm kind of trying to think about ways to to treat another those project. differently. And then another project, the one that I'm the mainly focusing on, came out of the discovery. The discovery about I mentioned it slightly earlier. It slightly earlier how. The much, the mission period and the gold rush period blind us to what happened between them. So I'm I'm, I'm at the very beginning stages of a project that looks at California's history from, say, 1836 or 37 or 38 to 1848. So literally, you know, I'm not going to talk about the gold rush and I'm not going to talk about the mission period. We're going to blind ourselves uh, to that and just see what was going on in that, that 10, 12 year period in between, particularly focusing on the ways Native people were. We're active in the transition of the state.
1: Those both sound like those both sound like fantastic projects, both and well. I'll have you both on the show individually when when those come out, hopefully in the not too distant future.
2: Yeah, hopefully,
1: hopefully. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> that's the hope. Right? Damon, Aikens is, Damon Aikens is an associate professor of history at Guilford College, and William J. Bauer Jr. is a professor of history at UNLV, and together. They are the co-authors of We Are the Land, A History of Native California, which is just out, just came out earlier this year in 2021 from the University of California Press. Thank you both so much for writing this book and for speaking with me today. It's been fun. Thank you,
0: Stephen. It's been really great. It's been great. Thank you so much.